Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. We're glad you're joining us on Hope Renewed today for what promises to be a fascinating conversation with Chuck DeGroote surrounding health in ministry. Uh, Fascinating and, I don't know, maybe a little painful, uh, because just as when a doctor does an exam, there's some poking and prodding that could be uncomfortable, but reveal deep truths about ourselves that need attention. Yeah, as you mentioned, Tom, our guest today is Chuck DeGroote. I first uh, learned of Chuck on Twitter. Just uh, he's, he's really active on Twitter and doing some great stuff there. But I got to know him through uh, the Soul Care Institute where uh, about two years ago. Uh, he was one of the instructors and has really been a gift in my life. Uh, Chuck is Professor of Counseling and Christian Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Uh, he leads soul care intensives, writes books, and works as a licensed therapist and spiritual director. He uh, has written several books, including Leaving Egypt, uh, The Toughest People to Love, Wholeheartedness, and uh, the award-winning book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Uh, He's working on a new book. It's very exciting to me. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that just a little bit. Uh, And uh, we just want to say, Chuck DeGroote, welcome to Hope Renewed. Thank you so much, Sean and Tom. Good to be with you. Well, this is going to be fun. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about uh, your ministry journey and what brought you to where you are today. I'm one of those guys who, who, even going back to high school, kind of wanted to be a pastor. I was kind of the kid who knew the answers in youth group. And, um, and, and yet, I mean, I, I, I think I could look back now and say that so much of that, even back then was fueled by some deep insecurity. Um, I, I knew the answers uh, so that I could belong, so that I could be approved of, accepted by the youth pastor, who was a pretty smart guy himself. And uh, yeah, I, what's interesting about that is that youth pastor recently uh became my D-Min student at the seminary, uh, came full circle, uh, both of us humbled through the years, but uh, he, he did my wedding, and it was because of him that I, I went to seminary back in the mid-1990s, and it was in seminary that I was, I was confronted with some of my own arrogance and um, went on a new kind of journey. I actually got my counseling degree uh, while I was still in seminary, and um, so I served as a pastor at two different churches uh, where I started church-based counseling centers. And um, and about eight years ago, I made the transition to seminary education. I often say it's sort of like the football player who goes up to the booth and now comments on ministry, you know, um, <laughs> but but I've, I've got some years in ministry, uh, but, but I've also loved to write. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to write some books, like you said, and uh, Probably the thing I love to do the most is counseling, though. I love to sit in a room and go to the deep places with people. Um, that feels like a real privilege. So uh, your book, Wholeheartedness, is, um, I think right now, one of the most important books that pastors uh, need to read. It's a profound book that, that really gets to the heart of, of uh, who we are as people and why we do what we do. And uh, I'm just curious, what, what led you to write this book? Well, that book, uh, that's really close to my heart, um, that one. That one and Leaving Egypt, uh, those two are really close to my heart in the sense that they, those two emerged out of um, some pretty deep places in my own journey. I think it was probably in uh, maybe 2009, 2010, when I was in San Francisco pastoring and I was a pastor on staff. I was starting a church-based counseling center. I was co-founding um, a kind of like a missional study center out there. And, and I thought I'd sort of landed my dream job in ministry. And, and yet uh, I was exhausted. I mean, I was, mm. I was, I, I was burning the candle at both ends. Uh, I wasn't healthy. I was drinking too much. I was not eating well, um, all in an effort, I think, just to cope with some of the demands. And, um, and so I began seeing a therapist who 
practiced in a kind of modality called internal family systems, not, not family systems as we typically think of it, but internal family, like, you know, the, the little kids inside of us, you know, that are constantly clamoring for attention. Um, six-year-old Chuck that's terrified that shows up sometimes in 51-year-old adult Chuck, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, as I did that work with this therapist, uh, it was it was a really important season of, of um, dealing with my own fragmentation and uh, finding some sense of wholeness myself. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was also in that season where I made some decisions. One of those decisions was to leave that a dream job, so to speak, and transition to the seminary. Uh, not that teaching in a seminary isn't a dream job, but uh, sorry to Western Theological Seminary. But, <laughs> um, but it, there was a sense for me of, of uh, the transition from a, a role where I was at a larger church on a large staff uh, in charge of some things to becoming junior professor uh, in charge of no one and nothing was probably really important for me at the time. Um, this sense of downward mobility that Henry Nowen talks about uh, and, and, a, and a major pay cut at that just to kind of be in a space where I could continue to grow and, um, and to be more present to myself, to my family, mm-hmm. to God, uh, that, that was really important. And, and I think wholeheartedness was born out of that, was born out of, with that, if you've read the book, come all kinds of musings in and around neurobiology and poetry and theology and contemplative spirituality. And so those, those things were sort of coming together in ways that I, I I think, um, uh, you know, back 10 years ago or so, I was just beginning to see these connections um, in in ways that were really fruitful for my ministry and for my life. So that book, it it really came out of my own experience. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think of Psalm 87 where David prays, give me an undivided heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that, uh, uh, prayer for that that wholeness that shalom mm-hmm. yeah. uh, kind of sense why why do you think pastors particularly are susceptible to divided lives yeah well you know i mean i think uh for me and for so many of us when when we decide to pursue this uh i, I think we, we know what's required of us um mm-hmm. you know to step up into the pulpit uh to step behind the table to preside at the table to baptize babies, to meet people in, in the painful moments of their lives. Um, people are looking for uh, someone who is um, put together spiritually and emotionally, you know, someone who mm-hmm. is uh, wise and holy and um, set apart, you know, all those kinds of Old Testament mm-hmm. priestly kinds of features, you know. Um, and and what, that, what that means for us sometimes is for us to um, disconnect ourselves from parts of us that aren't as pleasant to look at. Um, <laughs> you know, so, some of the burdens that we carry, the shame, the secret addictions, um, the, the feelings of fragility or brokenness, our sense of limitation, um, how overwhelmed, anxious, depressed we feel, all that stuff kind of gets shoved aside uh, so that we can step up and pretend that we know what we're talking about on a Sunday morning, you know, and, and look halfway competent doing it. And I think that it's sort of an, an inherent to the job, if you know what I mean, you know, like I, and I think, um, at least for me that I, we all deal with it in different ways, but I, I know already in seminary uh, that I begin to feel the fracturing of my soul. Like that, that was not sustainable, even at 27 years old. Now, sometimes it takes until 35 or 45 or 55 mm-hmm. for this to happen. But even at 27, uh, the anxiety in my body, my depression, my panic, um, all of that sort of came up in a way that I, I sat down with a, um, a really significant mentor in my life and counseling professor and said, what is going on with me? And that's the first I, I learned of a divided heart. But you know, I, I mean, I think even in, in seminary, there was this expectation that we're going to get good grades and preach good sermons and mm. be really competent. And yet, you know, you have to disconnect yourself in some ways then from so much of, of the other, the, the shadow side of, of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we do. That's what a lot of pastors do. Do you think in in seminary, in preparation for ministry, there there's, I want to say, a lack of attention to to. Yeah preparing the, the whole person to, to addressing yeah. these kinds of things? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I can't speak like across the board. It was my mm-hmm. experience for sure. And then I did mm-hmm. my doctoral work. I like I focused in on that um, particular subject. Uh, so, I mean, I looked at that, how seminary education prepares or maybe fails to prepare us for the complexities of ministry and life. But I know, you know, where I teach now at Western, we're, we've, they were, even before I came, attempting to address that in ways that I felt very different from my own seminary experience. And yet still, it's hard it's hard for a seminary to, to kind of take all of that on, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like I, I think in some ways, you, when, if you go to seminary in particular, maybe if you're doing it like via distance learning, you're in, you're kind of in ministry in context, but like when you go away for, for three years, it's a little bit of a lab experience and you're, yeah. you're, you're not thrust into the complex situations that all of us have experienced in ministry. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, so for a lot of my students who go out, they say, well, you prepared us pretty well, but you know, I'm, I'm a year in and I'm in over my head. I feel mm-hmm. completely inadequate. I feel like a phony on most Sundays. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I fake it in elder meetings. Um, w- help, you know, should mm-hmm. I just resign and uh, do real estate? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the major things that uh, I had to learn early on in ministry was that we have to face a certain amount of pain before we're willing to do yeah. the the work of wholeheartedness, mm. yeah, uh, and really engage in it, and I don't know if we're we're ready to do that yet in <laughs> seminary. That's right, particularly for those of us who are you know in our twenties and thirties, we're still ladder climbing. You know, I mean, I I sense a difference with uh, some of the folks in seminary who have some gray hair, you know, second yeah. career folks. Yeah. Um, but you know, f- when you're younger, I mean, there there is a sense. Um, you know, G- Jesus says to, to someone, go and keep the law. Like, uh, sometimes I feel like I do that with some of my students, like, go, go and try that out. Try doing it through competency, try climbing the ladder and see how that goes for you. And, you know, <laughs> Hey, I'll be waiting. You c- come back to me when, when you fall off the ladder. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. okay. Oh, that's, that's such a good word. It's okay. I mean, yeah. we, we all have to go through that at some mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Right. So as you were talking there, it, I was just reminded of a a quote from David White, where he says, the antidote to exhaustion isn't necessarily rest, Mm -hmm. but it's wholeheartedness. Yeah. And um, so many pastors right now are exhausted. Mm -hmm. Uh, The current climate, uh, maybe it's, you know, just the exhausting work of trying to to maintain that false self week Mm -hmm. after week. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are some ways that we can move toward wholeheartedness? Well, so real quick, even with that quote, I remember um, listening to David White's The Poetry of Self-Compassion. This must have been 2001, 2002. I was a young pastor. I was on my way to preach, and I, w- I was not prepared. Um, I was tired. There was a lot going on. Um, I think we had two kids under two at that point, and I was listening to David White on the way, and I heard that quote, you know, and that comes from Brother David Steindel Rast, as, as they were mm. gathered together, David and Brother David Steindel Rast said to him, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest, it's wholeheartedness. And I had to pull over. Um, it hit me between the eyes, and I had no clue what he meant. I, I mean, I just had this sense of whatever that elusive wholeheartedness is, I want it. Mm-hmm. But I have no clue what that means. And I and I, I think that's the that's tricky. That makes answering your question really challenging, Sean, because I there's not a like three steps to your most wholehearted right. life, seven <laughs> steps, ten <laughs> steps, you know. Um, in a sense, it's I, I think it does come through a recognition of of your fragmentation and your division. It, it comes when we begin to reckon with um, the debris field of damage in our own lives. When we, as uh, Robert Bly says, open the long invisible bag that we drag behind us and start pulling things out, you know, things Mm -hmm. that we stuffed in there that we had refused to deal with. Um, And, you know, who knows when we're going to be ready to do that. Uh, Sometimes I'll, you know, in this counseling work that I do, sometimes, you know, I'll sit with a 30 year old who's ready to do that. Um, so sometimes I'll sit with a 45 year old pastor who's only ready to do it now. In some cases, yeah, I was sitting maybe three or four months ago with a pastor in his late sixties who had never done the work. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there we were, uh, together and, you know, he was sobbing as he was recounting how much time he'd lost living from this mask of competency and control. And so, 
Yeah, Sean, it's it's really hard to say, right? Because it's we're all ready at different times and in different ways, and often it takes some failure. I think um, you know having people like you or a spiritual director to help guide us through some of that that work, uh, whatever comes to the surface as the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit wants to to bring us to wholeheartedness in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really important. Yeah, I want to move on to to your most recent book. Um, yeah. This, this is an interesting book to me. Uh, when Narcissism Comes to Church, uh, I think it's an important book, just another book for today. But uh, how, how did you move into this space of becoming an expert on narcissism? <laughs> Let's talk about yourself, Chuck. Yes, yes. <laughs> Takes one to write a book like that. In some ways, but, uh, no, you know, I mentioned that wholeheartedness really came from my heart in a way. And, and the narcissism book felt a little bit more like a duty. Um, I've told this story before, but I was doing some consultation work for a larger church and we had just completed a long process, probably took six months. Um, I had to make my final um, recommendations to 70 male elders. (laughs) Um, And I I had to recommend uh, the termination of a a popular lead pastor. I mean, it was just a really challenging, um, season. And there were a number of pastors in that, in that fold, in that mix who came to me at at the end of that and said, Hey, we, we, like, we didn't have any go-to resource to help us understand some of the dynamics that we were dealing with. Could you write something like that? And I said, unequivocally, I said, no way. (laughs) I am not interested. And, um, I don't think I've, I've ever told this part of the story, um, and I've done some podcasts on this because everyone wants to talk about narcissism, it turns out. Few people want to talk about wholeheartedness. Everyone wants to talk about narcissism. So thank you. Thank you for starting there. But um, Jeff Crosby of, of InterVarsity Press was visiting the seminary, and um, he was friends of a, a friend, and he stopped by my office, and he said, what do you have in mind to write? And I threw out a couple of ideas that weren't very sexy, you know, <laughs> And then I, I mentioned this narcissism book, you know, a couple of pastors want me to write on narcissism. And I think it was Jeff who said, well, that would be, that would be something that would be, you mm. know, people, people uh, with what's going on right now in the church, people, uh, people need a book like that. And so, mm. you know, I, I just, I know enough as a therapist, I've been practicing as a therapist for, for over 20 years now. Right. So I know enough about these things I've taught on these things. I know enough about personality disorders. I've, I've done, um, hundreds, if not over a thousand assessments of pastors, I know enough to be dangerous. Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, even if it didn't come out of the depths of my heart, like wholeheartedness did, it was very much sort of, a um, written for the sake of the church and for pastors. Um, and, and I really, I had this group of pastors in mind who, you know, came to, came to me specifically and said, we need a resource. So I was thinking, how do I write a book that is accessible, that can be a resource to the church? Um, so that's kind of the backstory. I just looking at your titles here. I just got them sitting in front of me of your books. You started off with uh, with leaving Egypt, finding God in the wilderness places, so mm-hmm. pretty dark places. And then you deal with the toughest people to love, uh, and then we come to wholeheartedness, and then when narcissism comes to the church, it 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 kind of sounds like we're following a journey here uh, from book mm-hmm. to book to book. Um, and in some ways, I feel like writing wholeheartedness was the foundation for when narcissism comes to church. Is that accurate? I, yeah, I think so. In the sense that I, I, I think, um, you know, I was the other day I was talking to someone, they wanted me to come out and speak and they, they were like, Hey, I, I don't know if I want you to speak on wholeheartedness or on narcissism. It's for a group of pastors. And I said, well, they're in, in a sense, you know, wholeheartedness is the antidote to, to the narcissistic mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. because the reality is, is that um, narcissism, I, I, I talk about this in the book, like when we talk about narcissistic personality disorder, we're, we're not talking about one's deepest identity. Um, right. We're talking about a, a pattern of, of behavior. Um, it's a part of oneself, a grandiose part of oneself that you've learned to live out of from a, probably a very early age because of maybe some abuse or whatever happened in your life. Like, I've got to show up like the bully now, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so it's, it's living a fragmented life. I'm going to mm-hmm. live out of this one part of me that feels powerful and strong and in control. And the reality is, is when I do my work with, with um, men in particular on the narcissistic spectrum, and if there's any, if there's any openness to doing the work, we will eventually get to 
um, the little boy uh, inside that he's trying to protect. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the bully, but behind the bully is this little boy who's scared to death. And, and it's like, if I let down my guard, um, if I, if, you know, if I put my armor down, um, this big bad world is going to hurt me. So I've got to keep my sword up. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of, this is where I have a lot of empathy for narcissistic mm-hmm. leaders. Um, that's a survival mechanism. Um, it, it's their autonomic nervous systems are so taxed because of their own trauma. And all they know now is to live with the sword up and the shield in hand, um, but they're exhausted. You know, most of them are really exhausted. And, and my job is to sort of create that safe spot, that safe place where they can, um, you know, maybe put down the armor for, for a little while and, and share a bit about what's going on inside. That's the journey to wholeness. And you, you say in your book that narcissism is about control. Uh, yeah. And I, I love this, this, uh, this sentence. It's a refusal to live within the God-ordained limits of creaturely existence. Yeah. Flesh that out for us. Yeah. I mean, so th- there was a book that you, um, you didn't include. So I, I self-published a little book called Falling into Goodness. It's a Lenten devotional. And um, in some ways, someone, someone said recently, it feels like that's the core of your theology. And I think that that's, that's true. Like Lent is, mm. I would say Lent is my favorite season of the year. It begins on Ash Wednesday. And as a pastor, people would come up front and I would impose ashes on them, um, sign of the cross. And I'd say, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And the reality is, is that is not saying you're really bad. <laughs> you know, you're really terrible. No, no, it's not at all. It's you are limited, fragile. Um, uh, you are not meant to be Superman, Superwoman, you know? Um, and, and so, and I, I do think, you know, there, there's, uh, for a lot of us culture that we're in, we're Americans, uh, maybe not all of your listeners are, but, you know, in this culture of manifest destiny and, and upward and onward. And, uh, you know, we, we have this sense that we've, we've got to be strong. We've got to be powerful. We've mm-hmm. got to be omnipotent, you know? And, um, for me, I think that journey that began at the age of 27 was Chuck, no, you're vulnerable. Uh, you're limited. Uh, you're, you're tired sometimes. I mean, now we're speaking to pastors, right? You're tired. Sometimes, um, you're overwhelmed. You can't do it all. You can't meet everyone's needs. Um, it feels like sometimes you can't even meet your family's needs. You can't even meet your own needs, you know? And so, yeah, we're limited. And that's, I, to me, that's really good news. If we can, mm. if we could find our way there, but there's a lot of pressure, you know, if you're the, if you're the pastor in town at that smaller church and, you know, there's that big, that big church up the road and they just keep gathering people because they've got the dynamic, you know, youth pastor and the, the really great children's pastor, and they've got the money to do programs. And you're just like, I just don't know what to do. Um, and my church is shrinking and, um, I, I'm the only person on staff. I fold the, the programs, the bulletins on, on Saturday night before church mm-hmm. on Sunday. That that's a lot, you know, mm-hmm. that's a lot. And that's where a lot of pastors live. That's where the majority of pastors live. Most of them aren't, uh, big church pastors, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, we're limited. Even the big church pastors, they're limited too. Your book, when I first picked this, this book up, I'm thinking I- I'm going to read about this world that that I don't know anything about, uh, and uh, see what what's affecting the church. And you started off the book with just this mirror, uh, inviting us to all look at our, ourselves and our own narcissism first. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't like that at first. Uh, yeah. That was not that was not fun for me. But <laughs> I I think that's an important part of what you're doing with this book is. Yeah inviting us to see uh, really how we're all engaged in this work. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about yeah. that? I think that I had to begin there with the book, right? I, I wasn't, I wasn't some like detached kind of expert. On, some, some people introduced me in the podcast, the expert on narcissism, code, you know, like, <laughs> um, and now I, I started off with me, with my own stuff, with my own egocentricity, with, with, uh, how I lived, uh, how I was living in my, my pastoral life. Um, uh, how I, you know, I, you don't get, you know, I, I have a bunch of letters next to my name and titles and stuff like that. You, you accumulate those things because you think that, that somehow, um, they'll immunize you from pain, you know, mm-hmm. and from anxiety. Um, uh, 
you know, we all have to sort of face our own reckonings, right? And I think I, I told you a little bit of that story for me. I mean, that reckoning began at 27. It continued uh, in the therapeutic work when I was in San Francisco. It continues today. But I, I think that regardless of whether or not you're diagnosably narcissistic, and I talk in the book about how there's a spectrum, you know, we have to face our own grandiosity, mm-hmm. our own sense of entitlement, um, our own egocentricity, um, our own um, phoniness, you know, I, whatever it is, you know, and I, uh, I remember doing a podcast early on where I, I felt some anxiety through the people who were asking questions, knew, knew a lot about psychology. And I thought I'd get caught up in like, I'd be exposed for not, you know, they br- bring up a question that I didn't, I didn't know, mm. you know, well, have you read this person on narcissism? I, I don't know. I've never even heard of that person, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I remember, you know, I was, 15, 10 minutes before the podcast, like I'm going through Wikipedia sites to see, are there any names that I, and I was like, here it is, you know, um, mm. trying to, trying to immunize myself against um, being exposed, you know, trying, trying to avoid my own vulnerability. Mm. Um, why, why can't I just say, yeah, I've just never heard of that author. I guess I didn't come across that resource when I was doing my work, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I'm too scared sometimes to do that. And so, yeah, we all, I mean, every day you wake up, you look in the mirror, you've got to face yourself. You got to face your stuff. If, you know, if you're in a relationship, uh, if you're married, uh, you got to face your stuff every single day. That's just life. This may be tipping, tipping your hand into the work you're doing now, but that, that fear of being exposed, you think that goes back to Genesis and and what's happening there? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's just so core. Right. Um, And I I, th- I often say that it seems like when you're reading the Genesis 3 account, that shame is like a byproduct of Adam and Eve grasping for the fruit, right? But I think shame actually is there uh, earlier in the, the account. I think that there's this sense in Adam and Eve, you know, when the serpent slithers up and says, surely God didn't tell you to eat from the tree. You know, that whole uh, mm-hmm. scenario where, where I, I mean, I think, I think that what's happening there, maybe I'm just reading into it too much, but I think what's happening there is that there, there's this voice of the serpent that's whispering, like, you're not enough. Hmm. You're missing something. Um, there's something out there that will complete you, if only you grasp it. Um, and and I think that's where it begins for each of us. You know, um, I, I know that that's where it begins with me. There's something out there. You know, I, the day I was just telling a friend of mine, uh, the day I got my PhD in psychology, I said to my wife, now I need to get a PhD in theology. It's not enough, you know. Hmm. Um, I will be exposed as a fraud for not having a PhD in theology, you know, so now I need to get that. That's just, you, you hear that, you know, I say that yeah. out loud, you guys just heard it. It's, there's something about that that really exposes that deep sense of scarcity um, mm. Mm. in me. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not over that. I suspect you're not over that yet. And it's Genesis three on replay. Hopefully we begin to though, I, I think as we do our inner work, we notice those patterns. Like we get mm-hmm. to know ourselves well enough that it's like, oh, there, there, there's that voice again within me. Mm-hmm. Hello voice that tells me I'm a fraud, you know, <laughs> welcome to the table. <laughs> so narcissism is, is in part that creating of the false self to cover Yeah. that, that fear. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and I think the narcissistic false self is a, is, tends to be a very grandiose false self. There are different kinds of false selves, right, that we live out of, different masks that we, we live out of. But this one just tends to be one that looks pretty controlling and pretty bullying and pretty powerful, pretty big, pretty strong. Because within there is a, you know, a little boy or little girl um, that is desperately frightened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, scared of the big bad world. It, it seems like the, the role of pastor, uh, to some degree, attracts a narcissistic personality. Um, yeah. But on the other side of that, um, even if somebody comes into pastoral ministry not being you know this grandiose narcissist, there can be some temptation in that direction too, can't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, so the, the first part, of your question. I mean, I, so I've done these, I've done assessments for about the last 15 years and, um, of pastors, church planners and pastors, well, church planners are pastors, but, um, (laughs) and, and, uh, so I, have done a lot of these and, and there are like three clusters of personality disorders and cluster B 
is your kind of uh, narcissistic cluster, you know, histrionic personality and antisocial personality, borderline personality. And I mean, like 80% or more are in the cluster B personality disorder. It's like very rarely will you get someone in the, the, the more eccentric cluster, uh, which would look a little bit more like, a, you know, kind of a um, someone, someone who uh, is, is just an odd personality or another, a, another cluster that's uh, maybe a bit more uh, quiet, dependent, withdrawn. No, it's usually the it's usually the the person who likes the stage. Um, I had a colleague. I think I said this in the book. Some version of of this. Like I had a colleague who said to me once. You know, we we have people who not only are not afraid of public speaking, like most people who come to seminary, but they're willing to get up on stage and say, "This is the word of the Lord," mm-hmm. and um, that's that's just kind of a pretty big deal. You know, you're the the kind of people who are willing to. Um, engage really sacred things to hold babies uh, and, and to bless them and baptize them to um, um, to speak words of uh, uh, sacramental words over elements of bread and wine and, and um, offer them as means of grace. I mean, that, these are just kind of like weighty things, you know, and mm. oh, yeah, that's what I, I feel called to, you know, mm. some mm. people feel called to insurance sales. But, you know, then, <laughs> then there are others of us who feel called to um uh, the bread and the wine and, and the, the, t- mm. the word. Uh, so that's, yeah, I think that there's like an inherent kind of um, grandiosity that we have to pay attention to. And really come to grips with too. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think of Luther when he had that moment of, yeah. you know, yeah. oh my goodness, what am I doing yeah. with yes. The, yes. the bread and the cup here? And yeah. we, we really do need to discern what that fine line is between the legitimate call yeah. Uh, to to stand to proclaim and the sense of me that I bring into that of what mm-hmm. is this giving me? How is this yeah. giving me? What am yeah. I getting out yeah. of this? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And and I think, you know, get, getting to the second part of Sean's question too with that is um I, I'm not gonna say the name, but years ago I um in a in a different um state and in a different denomination, uh I was mentoring um, a candidate who is extraordinarily gifted, um, son of a prominent preacher, and was doing some of the work, seeing a therapist. You know, we talked about, you know, you're good looking, you're charismatic, you're you're by far the best preacher at seminary. You've got all sorts of family influence and generational wealth and all this stuff, right? We set him up in his first gig, his first position to to be under a senior pastor who uh, I, I was pretty convinced would do good work with him and mentor him well. And, you know, for, for the first five years, he, he, uh, he engaged in a more humble ministry and then, you know, and then the call started coming and the book mm. and, you know, the book, uh, invitations, and then the, the more prominent pulpit, the church planning, the opportunity, opportunity, the more prominent pulpit, the, you know, and all the stuff. And I just watched narcissism bloom, you know, and even though, you know, we had had conversations and he had some tools. And so people, I just got an email the other day, someone saying, I want to talk about preventative measures for narcissism and pastor ministry. And I was sort of like, you know, you got me there. Cause I, I think, I think that I'm, I'm doing some of that at seminary. I think I'm inviting people into conversations that invite them to, to ask deep questions of their lives, but you get propped up on stage, people start coming, you start getting the book endorsements. I mean, we're seeing this right now with this podcast. It's so popular called the rise and fall of of Mars Hill, right? Mm -hmm. Where you see this evolution story of a guy who wanted a small church, but, but as, as the stage got bigger and as people started to come, the ego got bigger, the, you know, platform got bigger, the resources got bigger, the, the risks that he started taking got bigger. Yeah. So this, this can really grow in real time too. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that this dynamic of of the pastors feeding on that from their from the church, but the yes. church also feeding yes. on that from the pastors, and yeah. it, it's this this horrible yes. cycle that gets in. in yes, there. yes, yeah. Gerald Post calls that collective narcissism, and um, you know it's it's a little tricky because uh, it feels like to some people who are victims of narcissists that they're sort of like they're guilty too. They're implicated too. And that's, mm. that's not the point, you know, it, it does invite us though, to, to ask the question, why are we drawn to, to leaders like this, you know, and, yes. um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who end up following narcissistic leaders, uh, find that, you know, they came from abusive homes themselves, or, uh, you, you know, they're, 
deep fundamental needs that were met for for their own sense of empowerment or security mm-hmm. or belonging. Like uh, I've had people who are you know invited into the inner circle of the narcissistic leader say, um, "It's it's the first time in my life I felt like I really mattered. Like mm-hmm. I I got to be in those conversations, and um, I was I was the guy who was excluded, but now." You know, I was, I was being let in and he had this unlimited expense account. We'd go out for drinks and cigars. And finally, I was one of the guys. Um, and, and then I wasn't. And it hurt so bad, you know, and, and now we have to deal with the trauma of it. So, yeah, it's really complicated. And I'm glad you brought that up because that dynamic is real. I think it's important to point out that narcissism isn't just in big churches either. The, yeah. Uh, the, the small church pastor who's working on his own. Yeah. Um, can can just as easily get caught up in the the life on a pedestal that a small church yes. can can uh, have toward yeah. their pastor, and you know they see him as as the figure of the church or even of the whole community. Yeah, uh, and it can be really tempting to to just give yourself yeah. to that, can it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in these kind of r- more rural settings. I mean, that's where I've seen it the most, probably, but. You know, and, and in times where I think I probably gave an example of this in the book too, but like in times where it feels like, you know, you're in that small church and we're, we're the church that is preserving the truth or we're the mm. church that has the kind of the charismatic um, blessing uh, or whatever it is. It's something unique. You know, it's the truth. It's the, the right behavior. It's the charismatic, you know, whatever it is, it's like, we've got it and no one else does. And, uh, and so you know, our little church of 60, we are, as one elder said to me years ago, when our family was transitioning out of a, a small church like that, um, is a small Dutch church. And he said, but we are the true church, <laughs> this Dutch bro- <laughs> you know, and, and, and he really believed it. Like we are the only ones that are, uh, you know, are preaching the true doctrines of grace or whatever it is, you know? And so, I think that there's something about that where, you know, even though I'm a part of this small community, this small church, we are, we're the righteous ones. That's pretty dangerous territory too. Yeah. That, uh, that prideful certitude that yes. can just uh, permeate uh, even the, the whole culture of a, a church can really lend yeah. to some problems. Yeah. So, so what was your biggest takeaway from writing when narcissism comes to church? You know, um, I, I, I went into it pretty unenthusiastically. If, if, if you haven't caught that already, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was, I, even, even with the launch of the book, which by the way, corresponded with COVID um, was, was challenging um, uh, because, because uh, well, not only was COVID going on, but it was sort of like this, this isn't the topic that is like nearest and dearest to my heart, you know, mm-hmm. but I know, but, but I think, I think that what, what I realized, Sean, was that people really want to talk about this. Like, mm. um, I I had maybe done a, a couple dozen podcasts or a few dozen podcasts before this, and now now it's dozens and dozens and dozens. It feels like, and everyone wants to. And I think that's the you know the popularity, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and things like that. Like, people are impacted by this, by narcissism, mm. spiritual abuse. Um, uh, uh, it is very kind of real trauma that, uh, you know, when they read a book like this, it's like, yeah, that's my story. And I'm not crazy. Um, that's one of the things, by the way, I say is if I wrote it for one reason, it's to say, you're not crazy, Mm -hmm. you know, that this actually Mm -hmm. did happen to you. But I, I think that was the big, the big revelation for me is like, there's just so much pain. And while I, I really wish that people would want to talk about wholeheartedness more. We need to, we have to talk about this, this pandemic, this epidemic in the church of, mm-hmm. of narcissism and abuse mm. um, that we see in, you know, Me Too and Church Too. We saw, you see all the way across the landscape, and different denominations and theological traditions. It just, we've got to name it, mm. uh, call it what it is. Well, and, and it goes to the distinctive of the, the church in the world as well, I think, because, I mean, this is not, certainly narcissism doesn't just live in the church, right? It's, yes, it's the yes, soup in yeah. which we're swimming right now. Yeah. And how followers of Jesus are called to be distinctive mm-hmm. um, in the world and to the world in this very way. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. consider others more highly than you consider yeah. yourselves. And yeah. 
Yeah, Fli- I, I, I think very early on, I, I started with Philippians 2 in, in the book because I, I feel like Philippians 2, the Christ hymn, is, is sort of the, the, the antidote in a sense. It's the image of cruciform power. The, mm. I often say, because I've been asked to speak on power and spiritual abuse and things like that, um, power is not the problem. We were given power as ambassadors of, of God, as image bearers of God, right? Um, a power to to, to, to bless a power motivated by love to bring about flourishing in the world. Mm. Um, that's not the problem. It's, it's that we, we don't live from a place of cruciform power as mm. Jesus did. He did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, right? It, the different translations grasped, exploited, taken advantage of. And that's exactly what spiritual abusers do mm. what narcissistic shepherds do. They exploit, they take advantage of, um, they, they use people as mirrors to, you know, sort of to mirror back to them what their ego needs. Feed me, feed me, feed me. I need your applause. I need your approval, right? And so I think, uh, yeah, in some ways, Philippians 2 is the, um, is the antidote. I love the language of grasping, right? Jesus did not consider equality with God to, something to be grasped because that's the language of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve grasped. Mm. And mm. so I think, I think that there, that makes for a really neat bookend, you know, on, I, you know, so I, I preach for a while, so that, that'll that preach too, you know, I mean, people like things like that. Yeah, we had uh, one of your students on the podcast earlier this year, Mike Gore, came yes. on and he yeah. was talking about shame and he started getting into a teaching on uh, Genesis 3 about some mm-hmm. questions there that sounded very familiar. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, this is your next project, isn't it, uh, to, uh, to get into the questions of Genesis 3? Yeah, you know, I, I hope it shapes up like that. As you know, Sean, I mean, I got to read your great book, uh, which I hope <laughs> comes out soon too. And maybe we could turn the tables on you and interview you next. But um, <laughs> I think Mike and I, Mike was, Mike was my D-Min student, doctor of ministry student, not a demon. People are confused <laughs> about that. Um, a doctor of ministry student. And uh, we really wrestled with, uh, with, with issues of shame and how it shows up in pastoral ministry. He, he really did courageously. Um, And yeah, what, what I didn't listen to that podcast, but I think what you're hinting at is what I consider to be the three questions of Genesis chapter three. Uh, The first question, one that people are probably pretty familiar with, where are you? Mm. Um, But then the next question that God asks is who told you, Um, uh, which invites us to listen to the, the voices within and, and among us that uh, whisper words that contradict God's word, that we're the beloved, um, that we're loved, that we're known, mm. we're seen. And then, and then finally, um, my translation is, is, what do you long for? What are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? Um, uh, God asked, have you eaten from the, uh, the fruit of the tree that I asked you not to eat from? But my translation is, what are you hungry for? Where have you taken your hunger, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a question that each and every one of us has to ask, but then follow it up with is what do we long for in the deepest, like Augustinian sense of longing, you know, mm-hmm. desire, what do you desire? Um, I desire a lot of things like I desire um, nice cars and boats and houses and things like, but <laughs> you know, what do you desire with big D desire? And by the way, those three questions come before God says, what did you do? I mean, like, that's the first question that we're prone to ask is what, what have you done? What did you do? You know, when you do something wrong, but it shows a really um, amazing, extravagant curiosity on God's part. And mm. um, I see, yeah. And, and you mentioned this. I mean, what I'm hoping to do is I'm, I'm hoping to integrate those into a book that invites people to look at themselves, their story, how they show up in the world. Um, and and uh, to imagine a new way of flourishing. We decided to move in the midst of my, I'm on sabbatical right now. We decided to move. And so there hasn't been a lot of writing done in the last, let's say five weeks or so. So stay tuned. We'll see. <laughs> see what comes of it. Well, even if it never turns into a book, it's a great teaching and people can yeah. access that teaching on yeah. your website, can't they? There's a Yeah, I did do like a video teaching. Um, on my website that people can, uh, can uh, download that, uh, you know, sort of, sort of an invitation. It's used in church groups and contexts, stuff like that. It's sort of an invitation to, to these three questions. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the most important things that, that I took away from the Soul Care Institute was when 
you said to listen to these questions as if God is asking them from a heart of compassion rather yes. than judgment. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. that just changed the whole yeah. thing for me. It was it was profound. Well, it's it's sort of like I don't know about you guys, but I think for a lot of us, Genesis three was the original sin chapter. You know, mm-hmm. like I. Um, that's, that's the bad news. That's the indictment. That's the, mm. you, you've done it wrong. And not only that, um, you, you bear this as an inheritance and, um, you're guilty. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty different when you approach the text from that vantage point, the God who doesn't show up with a kind of, uh, theological, uh, you know, text on original sin, but shows up with curious questions and presence and love and, compassion, you know, mm. um, that's uh, by the way, not meant to undermine a, an entire tradition, Augustinian <laughs> tradition, but it, but it is to say, let's reframe it. You know, maybe we can understand it more compassionately. And, and so that's what I, as Sean, that's, that does my heart a lot of good to hear you say that, because mm-hmm. I think I say all that stuff out loud because I'm still wrestling with it myself. Um, mm-hmm. and every day I have to wake up and, and show, uh, compassion to the parts of me and invite God to show compassion to the parts of me that I think, mm. Oh God, the world doesn't need to see this. And I, I don't want to see this. I hate that part of me. And, and that, that brings us full circle to that whole work of wholeheartedness is yeah, really just approaching ourselves with that, that compassion to be, mm-hmm. be willing to step in and let God ask us those questions. Mm. Yeah. And then even in the places I think um, where we think, well, God, God just hates that about me. I mean, I, over the years, I've seen a number of men, for instance, who um, wrestle with, with uh, pornography addictions, um, women who um, self-harm, wrestle with eating disorders, men and women, both of them, I should say, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a gendered thing necessarily, but uh, who will come to me and say, surely God just despises that part of me, you know, and and as we pay attention to what fuels um, lust and sexual addiction, uh, eating compulsively, whatever it is, oftentimes what they find if they don't, if they choose not to despise that part of them and cut that part of them off. What they find through a process of curiosity is, oh, I'm just hungry. I'm just mm-hmm. ravenously hungry. There's a really wonderful, here's another book recommendation, really wonderful book years and years ago from a woman named Margaret Bullet Jonas called Holy Hunger. Uh, she was a, a good friend of Henry now, and she and her husband, Robert Jonas. And, um, it's this story of, of, uh, of her eating disorder, her eating addiction, and her discovery that there was a deeper hunger underneath. And as, mm-hmm. as we befriend these parts of us, we don't cut them off. We don't approach them with shame. But as we realize that God, God's not afraid, God knows it all. You know, mm-hmm. God's not afraid of moving toward us in this, but God moves toward us compassionately. Well, maybe we can experience transformation. And that's what I hope for. And that that's really at the heart of, of the work of the Soul Care Institute. Um, mm-hmm. uh, your counseling intensives or the, the soul care intensives yeah. that, that you yeah. run. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about, about that part of your ministry. Yeah. So um, the, the first piece that you mentioned, um, Sean is Sean has been through the Soul Care Institute. I get to serve as a faculty member, which means that I I, um, I speak at one of their uh, Soul Care retreats, and um, uh, I, I just get to be one small part of a, a week of, of um, spiritual direction, spiritual disciplines, silence, solitude, teaching, meals together. That, that, that's a really beautiful two-year program that people can engage six weeks, two years of um, of invitation to to your story, to silence, to solitude, spiritual disciplines, the Enneagram, justice and mercy. It's really beautiful. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is, is quite different, but um, uh, in some ways, and that's uh, back in the early 2000s, I, I a- apprenticed under someone who was doing five-day counseling intensives. And uh, I, I almost stepped into leadership of a retreat ministry, but I was like, I'm 32 years old. I'm you know, I'm not ready for this. Uh, and so I said, no, I continue to do some intensives every like one off every now and then. But uh, I, I, I started doing this in earnest again, a few years back, uh, where I spend five days, three hours a day with people doing the deep work of what I call soul care. Now I'm a therapist. So it's definitely therapeutic work. But I'm, I'm also a spiritual director, um, who brings, you know, kind of more um, holistic paradigm to the work. Right. And so, mm-hmm. 
And to be honest with you, I work with a lot of pastors um, in, in this. Um, uh, I'm really thankful that there are churches who are willing to uh, sponsor their pastors, resource mm-hmm. their pastors to spend five days looking at the trauma of pastoral life and to, to, to get away to, to, you know, to, to find your way to Holland, Michigan and, um, you know, a week on the lakeshore and some rest and refreshment and naps and um, reading and quiet and deep, deep work. And it's really a privilege. It's like, it's what I love to do the most probably of all the things that I do. Thanks for asking. So uh, Chuck, where can uh, people find out more about you online? So the website is chuckdegroat.net. Um, and as you said, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I probably spend more time on Twitter, Facebook. Um, the publisher tried to get me to do Instagram more, which I'm trying to do. But, uh, you know, I remember the phrase, you got to up your Instagram game. <laughs> like, yeah, just, you know, at some point, when do you say you're, I'm 51 years old and I just, you know, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know, but I'm trying to, I guess, up my Instagram game whatever that means. So mm. yeah, I'm over there on Instagram too, trying my best. <laughs> well, Chuck, we, we love to take an opportunity every podcast to allow our guests to just speak to our listeners from your heart. What, uh, what would you like to offer in, in words of hope to those who are listening today? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Sean invited us to it earlier through the words of uh, brother David Steindel Rast and David White, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest, it's wholeheartedness. And um, if you, if you're listening, and you are as curious as I was back in the early 2000s, when I pulled over the side of the road, didn't have a clue, thought, I, I, uh, I want whatever this is, because whatever I've been trying to do, that looks like rest, by the way, which was um, work really hard, and then um, watch a lot of college football on the weekends and take <laughs> naps. And, you know, uh, there's something more available. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a life, an undivided life, integrated life, a wholehearted life, a life of oneness and worthiness, a life of um, being known, seen, loved by the one who pursues you even in your darkest places. And I would say it's the work of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I you know, I wish I could offer three easy steps or seven, seven steps, but it's a work of a lifetime. And um, as Richard Rohr likes to say, it's three steps forward, two steps back. That's what I would offer that invitation. Chuck, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and offer just yourself uh, and yeah. in, in how God's led you through so many things uh, for our listeners. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. Well, thank you guys. And as always, we invite you, our listeners, to rate and review Hope Renewed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and to share this podcast with your friends on social media. It's a great way to help us continue to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It's our prayer that you find a renewal of wholeness and joy as you hope in Christ alone. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed, and remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame.